and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, I'm excited to be talking to a prolific and talented writer and producer who's worked on such shows as CSI New York, Blade, The 11th Hour, and The Dead Zone. And most recently, he was the executive producer on Cinemax's Banshee, which just recently returned for its fourth and final season. Currently, we're sitting in his office where he's executive producer on Outcast, a new horror series from Walking Dead creator Robert Kirkman, which premieres June 1st on Cinemax. Welcome to the show, Mr. Adam Targum. Thanks for coming on, Adam. Thank you for having me. Um, Okay, first things first, we always like to find out how you got started in the industry and what inspired it. There's always a story there. Um, I don't remember. Okay, um, there we go. Okay, no, next question. <laughs> uh, in, in terms of the inspiration, I um, I have been a, a storyteller since as long as I can remember. Um, translation: I'm a good liar. Um, <laughs> no, but you know, even as a kid, um, before I discovered sports, you know, I, I I was certainly one of those children that sort of lived in the clouds and you know uh, the fantasy you know fantasy world and and uh, it was just always sort of my sort of my instinct to create you know alternate realities in my mind and to sort of play you know to play in those worlds um so even even by the time i was you know in in elementary school and then high school i always knew that some sort of storytelling was something i wanted to do um i always excelled in creative writing um, and that's because I can't add or subtract or multiply. <laughs> I have a nine-year-old daughter who last night um, was trying to uh, work on her multiplication tables. And beyond six times six, I was completely done. I had no idea. <laughs> um, and I taught her about the joys of accountants and calculators. Um, nice. So I think out of necessity, right. I turned to storytelling. Um, and uh, just as I was getting you know, ready to figure out what I was going to do, you know, at least in terms of my higher education, I knew that entertainment was something I wanted to get involved in, but I wasn't quite sure in what capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I did, I, I went to film school, um, I went to NYU, um, I was sort of dabbling a lot of everything. Um, a little bit of writing, a little bit of directing, um, and then sort of stumbled into producing, uh, and now 15 years as a professional, I'm only now starting to understand what that word means. Um, <laughs> but back, back then, I sort of thought I did, and I had the opportunity to produce um, I'm doing air quotes right now. Um, <laughs> yes. All of the um, all of the, the student thesis films of all of my friends who had a whole lot of money um, and terrible scripts, but they were there to basically direct. Mm-hmm. So I would happily spend their money um, and have you know cast and crew being driven around in limousines in New York City. <laughs> um, I now shudder to think about all the money that we wasted. I wish I could have it back. Um, but what I found was that a lot of the scripts were were god awful. Um, and then just needing to be able to have a workable shooting draft of something, I found myself rewriting a lot of the scripts um, and sort of discovered that, okay, you know, screenwriting is certainly an opportunity for me to embrace all of my sort of creative needs. Um, very visual medium, you know, allows me to go just about anywhere I want to go, but that still wasn't my primary focus. Um, and then right out of school, my first job was as the second assistant to the executive producer of the original Law and Order, um, way back in the day, um, where I, I got the opportunity beyond walking dogs and you know making coffee um, to actually sit in on story meetings and table reads and really get a sense of um, 
what that process was. And I was pretty much sold at that point on you know, the fact that this is something that I wanted to do. Um, it was a uh, many years until that actually came back around and came to fruition. I got the opportunity to do it. There were some, uh, some diversions along the way, like working at an agency and then being a personal manager for three years and representing actors. Um, but that's a whole other story and probably a different podcast. <laughs> well, I'd also heard that, um, yeah, you were a personal manager earlier in your career working with you know, high-profile actors and filmmakers, but then you also became the producing partner, didn't you, of Home Improvement stars Zachary that Tegwright came, and produced that, movies, That right? came a little bit later in life. Uh, Zach and I had been, um, had been friends for years, mm-hmm. um, and there was, just, there was a time where sort of the stars had all sort of aligned um, I had already done a couple of television shows at that point, um, and I had also, you know, had a, a feature that I'd written mm-hmm. had been made um, and then destroyed. Um, we won't go into that. Um, we'll talk about my bitterness uh, in the feature industry because only recently, when I've sort of re-entered into it, has it bitten me in the ass yet again. Um, right. I love TV, uh-huh. um, but yeah, no. The, uh, Zach um, had uh, had come across a uh, you know an opportunity to have a production fund, mm-hmm. which is the greatest thing in the world, everybody wants one of those, sure. and had sort of approached me and said, hey, um, is this something we you know, should do together? And we sort of have an opportunity to uh, both bring our different you know, unique skill sets and approach. And we, uh, yeah, we actually uh, made a number of independent um, films, uh, which I'm very proud of. Uh, you know, most recently was a film called uh, you know, The Grief Tourist, uh, which stars a very close friend of mine, Michael Cudlitz, of mm-hmm. uh, Southland and Walking, uh, Walking Dead fame, and Melanie Griffith which um, was reviewed as the darkest film ever made. Um, and it is. Um, and it was based on an incredible script um, by an uh, actor-slash-writer named Frank John Hughes, um, who honestly is, is one of the most talented writers I've ever worked with, had the pleasure to know. Um, very seldom do I read a script and have the impulse to grab white out and change the name on the cover to mine. Right. Um, but every time I read something to Frank, that's the case. Um, but yeah, no, um, you know, we did that for a couple of years and, and we're very successful with it and then sort of split ways and, and have gone on to other projects. But mm-hmm. yeah. Um, now, we were talking before the podcast started and I wanted to bring it up again because I thought it was very interesting and insightful. You also used to teach at USC um, screenwriting. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how that came about and your experience with that? Yeah, no, I, I, had, I had an opportunity to... Um, uh, to meet with Jack Epps, who, um, you know, incredible writer in his own right, um, who had uh, apparently heard my name. I'd been recommended uh, by some colleagues and friends to go in there and teach, and it wasn't something that I'd really thought about, um, but it seemed like a great opportunity. Um, you know, uh, I do love hearing myself talk, so I thought there was a great opportunity <laughs> for me to have a captive audience for three hours a week. Um, so yeah, so I embraced that opportunity, went in there, and you know, having the opportunity to actually start articulating some of the the fundamentals of good writing, um, things like you know, starting with with character and and grounding everything in, in real human condition and real emotion, um, you know, and talking about scene structure and you know that that every scene needs to have a point of view and there has to you know be conflict and objective. These things which. You know, I had not articulated or said out loud in a very long time, or if ever, um, when I would actually, you know, impart this knowledge to the students and actually say it out loud, I found myself driving home after every class going, wow, I should probably focus on that again. 
Um, and it really, it, it sort of re-energized me to look back at, at the craft and make sure that I was sort of hitting some of those fundamentals. Because I, I know that, you know, I can speak for myself and probably other writers is that you do get a little bit lazy, you do get a little bit complacent, and especially when you're writing, um, when you're writing multiple episodes of the same show, especially if you're doing, say, a network procedural type show, that it is, you know, a little bit of sort of paint by numbers when it comes to structure and it comes to, you know, what you need to do with act breaks and, and what, you know, elements you need to hit. Um, and you do, you fall into sort of the same patterns and, um, and like I said, you get a little lazy. So that was really um, enlightening for me to have the opportunity to actually sort of look back inwards and say, okay, you know, here's an opportunity for me to, you know, recommit myself to making sure that every scene that I write is the best that it can be. Um, and that couldn't have come at a better time because as I was, um, I think it was my third or fourth semester teaching at USC, the opportunity came along um, to, uh, you know, sit down and meet with Jonathan Tropper, the creator of Banshee. Um, and fortunately, we hit it off. And then I, you know, jumped onto that show. Um, which is a completely singular and unique animal unto itself, where all of those fundamentals of good writing um, were put to test. Um, and, and, and really, um, I needed them to face some of the challenges of, of writing a show that's so very different. Right. Um, and Cinemax has sort of become the place to be. I mean, there's a lot of great shows on Cinemax. And if you, I mean, everyone talks about the. And more to come. Yeah, no, with, you know, obviously with Strike Back and The Nick and Banshee and now Outcast, um, some great, great stuff. Yeah, um, I will say that I, I felt a little bit trapped in the network world for mm -hmm. a long time. Um, not that I'm so grateful for the opportunities that I had, um, but it's not always an easy transition to make. Um, you know, all the working writers out there in television know that it's very easy to get pigeonholed in this industry. And you're known as, you know, the half hour comedy guy or the one hour procedural guy or the, you know, or the primetime soap guy. And you do, you get, you get sort of put in these little boxes where it's very easy for agents and executives to understand who you are and what your voice is. Um, after doing so much of the procedural television that I did, I found myself in a position where I said to my agent, hey, I would love the opportunity to be writing some of these great premium cable shows. This is the type of storytelling that I want to be doing. Um, and, and just, it was a little disheartening to hear that, unfortunately, I had been labeled as a guy that, you know, wasn't necessarily a character guy and more of a plot, you know, sort of guy. And that isn't really who I am and how I see myself as a writer. So I did something that I promised myself I would never do again, and that was, uh, I wrote a spec script. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and it's, it's one of those things where for a year and a half, my agent was saying, well, maybe you should write a spec. And I said, well, I get paid to write now. I'm right. not doing that. Right. Um, and finally, I think just in defiance of him and saying, fine, I'm going to write one, <laughs> um, I sat down and I wrote the, the show that I wanted to see, that I wanted to watch. Um, and and I, I love my agent dearly for it uh, because I'm glad he got me to that place to do it. Because he always said to me, it's going to change your career. And I said, bullshit. And the reality is, four years later, it completely changed my career. Um, writing a piece of material that, that had the voice and, and, the, and the aesthetic that I was most passionate about, which fortunately was very much a premium cable um, 
you know, sort of balls to the wall voice uh, opened a lot of doors. Um, and that script actually, you know, had a lot of interest, as is always the case in this business. Interest, you know, wanes when the realities uh, of selling something come into play. Um, but that piece of material got me into Cinemax. Um, it got me the opportunity with Jonathan. And it got me the opportunity to work in a place um, that, as Soderbergh describes it, you know, when asked why he took the Nick to Cinemax, he said, any place that will allow a show like Banshee to be on the air is a place that I want to work. And that is a testament to um, Mike Lombardo and to, and to Carrie Antholis and to Scott Nemus, who are truly the most supportive executives when it comes to letting their filmmakers and their creatives create the shows that they want to make. Um, there were many times over the last two seasons of Banshee where Jonathan and I would come up with a storyline or, or a set piece and we'd say there's no way in hell that Cinemax <laughs> is going to let us do this. Um, and we would go into the room and they'd essentially look at us after we pitched it and go, yeah, um, but can there be three more lesbians having sex on a horse in the background? And we go, sure, we can do that. <laughs> so so it, was, it was a place that sort of reveled in some of the, the pulp noir of the show. Um, from the beginning, Banshee never shied away from tropes and cliches. It actually embraced them and it ran with them and mm -hmm. it put its own spin on the show. And that was always the mandate was to take a scene that you could probably see on 18 other TV shows, but put our Banshee spin on it and do it in a way that no one else had seen. So it may be a familiar premise, it may be a familiar setup that falls so firmly into the crime noir sort of genre, but it, we did it in a way that nobody else would. And maybe sometimes that was just pushing it to an extreme and pushing it to a limit that people were like, they're not gonna go that far. And we would go that far yeah. and then even farther. Um, but what I like to talk about with that show, and, and now that we're premiering the, the fourth and final season, which I'm so proud of because I think in the fourth season we finally found the perfect balance between character and the action pulp that the show has always done so well. Um, what I really like to talk about is the fact that, yes, we do, we do giant action set pieces where a character will get hit with a tomahawk 12 times and survive and then kill the other character. Right. In this case, with a Rolls Royce hood emblem and then ripping their esophagus out and choking them from the inside out. That <laughs> happens. Um, we get away with such heightened reality, with such over-the-top sort of um, sort of you know fantasy land because the characters are so grounded in real emotion and real disillusionment and real regret and and all of those sort of vices that that are so relatable that make these characters real is I think the saving grace of the show and why it works so well um, Tropper quoted someone the other day and he wasn't even quite sure where the quote came from, but it was something along the lines of, you know, we have real frogs in a fairy tale pond. And I love that because right. the idea of um, playing an arena is really exciting to me. You know, when I hear people say to me, there's too much sex on the show, there's too much violence on the show, I say, you know what? People have sex in real life sure. and people kill each other in real life and people do awful, awful things. It's the motivations that fascinate me. Right. You know, for me, my writing has really evolved into the same starting point every single time is I want to do origin stories. I don't believe that monsters are born. I think that they are a product of their environment. It becomes, you know, experiential. They're made. And, and I want to know 
why as an adult someone is such a fucking horrifying individual. Right. I want to know what created that. Was it their parents? Was it a bad experience? Was it, you know, just, just you know, dogma and, and, rep and, and oppression and repression? All of these things are now always the starting point for me for these characters, no matter what I'm doing. Um, so that was the, uh, you know, that was, that's the beautiful thing about a place like uh, HBO and Cinemax. And now... Amazon and Hulu right. and and so many other places now that are just embracing their filmmakers and saying, you know what? Tell the story you want to tell. Let the storylines evolve organically. And don't contrive them and don't, you know, worry about offending middle America or offending anybody. Hey, Banshee, we were equal opportunity offenders. There's nobody that we <laughs> right. didn't go after. If you're going to offend somebody, just make sure it's your equal opportunity Absolutely. Offenders. Absolutely. You know... And that's and that's uh, you know that's okay, and that's okay, and that's and that's been the gift of you know the last three four years of my career, um, and now again you know having the opportunity to continue, you know my tenure with Cinemax and and working with guys like Robert Kirkman and Chris Black who are also about telling the best story possible, um, and taking the audience on a on a ride and manipulating them. I know some people say that's a bad thing. I think it's a great thing. It's, I think it's our job as storytellers to manipulate our audience and to play with their emotions and to take them, you know, to, to the depths and then take them to heights and then drop them back down into the cesspools sure. again. That's, you know, that's what people tune in for. Right. You know, if they're going to be gracious enough to give us an hour of their time or sometimes eight or 10 or 12 mm -hmm. or however many hours of their time, then we have a responsibility to make sure that, you know, it is an experience and they walk away from it feeling something. And I always say, even if they hate the show, that's fine too. Love it or hate it, at least you're experiencing extreme emotion versus neutrality. Right, that's where you the walk, worst. Where you walk away and you're like, eh, right. okay, now I'm going to make a sandwich. Right. So. Yeah. Now, what, going into Banshee's fourth season, knowing that it was the fourth season, the final season, um, is sort of a unique situation, giving you the opportunity to tell the story the way you want to with no sort of repercussions. How was that freeing, and how was that a challenging? It, it, was, it was a little bit of both. Um, we didn't know, beginning season four, that it was absolutely the last. Okay. Um, there was an opportunity for us to go beyond that, but when Jonathan and I put our heads together and started really talking about what we would do beyond season four, knowing what the season four storyline was at least what the big arcs were, what the big drives were for the individual, you know, characters, not necessarily knowing where we were going to end it when we started off. Um, but once we got to about a third of the way through the season and we really, like I said, started talking about where we would go with it, every sort of notion that we came up with either didn't ring true or it felt like we were doing a different show. It didn't feel like Banshee anymore. Um, you know, for you Banshee fans out there, we talked about, you know, Lucas and Brock, you know, moving to the Bahamas and opening a detective agency <laughs> and having a, a rum bar on the beach. And while it was a lot of fun to joke about that, we were like, well, this isn't the show anymore. Right. Um, so it became pretty apparent early on that we were done telling the story, you know, that, that we wanted to tell. And then Jonathan, who had created the show, um, you know, very responsibly decided, you know what, this is the end. And the worst thing we could possibly do is stick around too long um, because that's the worst. And we've all, you know, had shows that we fall in love with. We fall in love with characters and we fall in love with the narrative. And then 
there's an extra season in there that we go, eh, maybe not that season. And then maybe one more where we go, wow, they went two seasons too long. Right. Never wanted to do that with this show. It is a tremendous responsibility, I think, to take a show like Banshee, which has diehard fans. Mm -hmm. You know, from the day the first episode aired, it was a word of mouth show. And the fan base grew and grew and grew. Um, you know, I am constantly contacted by the most loyal fans out there. Um, you know, we did Comic-Con this year, and people stuck around for hours just wanting to ask questions and just wanting to, you know, be part of this world. Um, we took that responsibility really, you know, really seriously of, of honoring the characters and honoring the fans and giving them the most fulfilling, satisfying ending. I know we're going to disappoint some people, and I know that they're going to understand why we made the choices that we made. But I honestly believe that we did the show justice and that we finished it up in a way that, you know, is... is, is Worthy, I think, of the stories that we told. Um, you know, and, and there's not a lot of happy endings. You know, and there will be some bloodshed. But I also think we're going to defy some expectations. I don't, mm -hmm. think that, I don't think that everything that people expect to happen is going to happen. And maybe the things that they do expect to happen that do happen will happen in different ways. So, but I'm so proud of this season. I, I honestly, if I look back at the, you know, span of my career and now eight television shows and a handful of movies and a bunch of other stuff that I've done, um, this, this season of Banshee, these eight episodes, these eight hours, um, are, are by far the thing that I'm most proud of. Um, and, and I'm just thrilled that I was a part of it. So. Any uh, Better Call Saul-like spinoff, like a pre-Job in Banshee well, show? Well, I will tell you Sugar that um, every Boxing single career? one of the actors yeah. has, uh, has pitched their spinoff to <laughs> right. me at least four or five times. You right. know, we had, a, uh, we had a little premiere party last week um, where, you know, the vast majority of the actors uh, came. Um, even, you know, Ulrich Thompson came all the way from, you know, from, uh, you know, from Denmark. Mm -hmm. um, O.C. Madsen, our director, you know, executive producer. Um, it was nice to see everybody, but it was also really bittersweet. Right, um, right. This show was unlike just about any other show. Part of that born out of the fact that we shot on location mm -hmm. um, for such large amounts of time and that it was a little bit of that sort of summer camp sort of mentality. Um, the physical drain and strain that it put both on cast and crew because of the nature of the show and because it is a crime noir show that shoots a lot of exterior night, very few standing right. sets, um, a lot of ravines, and a lot of woods, and <laughs> right, a lot right, of right. shitty, shitty location, swamps and mud up to our eyeballs. Um, and then, you know, these actors who, um, you know, keen observers will realize that our actors did 90% of the action themselves. Mm -hmm. That's all actor action. We, with amazing stunts, you know, doubles and stand-in, but, you know, we would use them really sparingly. And that's what also elevated you know, the, the Banshee stunt sequences to a level that no other show, you know, um, has been able to achieve. Partially because of Marcus Young, you know, one of the best in the business when it comes to stunt coordinating, but also because our actors were doing it. Um, I made a lot of great friends on this show. Um, as a whole, the show is a real family, and, and everybody sort of individually came over to me, and we sort of lamented the fact that it will probably never be as good as we had it. Um, you know, sometimes it's just sort of lightning in a bottle and just that right. the alchemy comes together and you sort of can't recreate it. Um, 
Uh, again, I've been fortunate to work on shows with great people and great cast. Outcast, uh, there's friends that I'm working with on the show that I love. Um, you know, Chris Black and I did a show called Standoff um, for Fox uh, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And for 10 years, we kept saying, we got to work together, we got to work together again. And it never happened. And here we are working together again. So that's very, you know, satisfying. Um, but Banshee was a sort of a once in a lifetime sort of, you know, opportunity. So it's, it's sad. Um, but no regrets. <laughs> Maybe a few. Just a few? Just a few. Um, now, you're working on uh, Outcast based on a comic book series. You obviously just finished up Banshee, which obviously an original series. Yes. Uh, where you guys could do anything, go anywhere. And not that Outcast, when you're based on comic book material, pre-existing material that you're tied to it obviously Walking Dead kind of to goes its own way characters that are dead in the comics are still alive and vice versa um, what is it like though working from source material yeah. it's, it's an adjustment it's, it's the new reality of our business too sure. um, I'm constantly being sent IP from my agent projects that are out there and everything is a graphic novel or a comic book Right. Um, so, so love it or hate it it's something that we all sort of have to embrace um, there's something really, really wonderful about having source material and having a foundation that you can build from. Um, you know, to speak specifically about, you know, Robert Kirkman and, and Outcast, um, he has a comic book, you know, in Outcast that has a massive fan base. It's a great comic book. Um, the storylines are, are adrenaline-packed. It's very different than The Walking Dead. Um, the way it's drawn is visceral and 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 just really captures all of the the magic and the intensity of the show. But again, a 22, 23, 24 page comic book does not instantly translate sure. into a you know 60 page television script. Nor does it make for uh, in the case of this show 10 hours a season of television. Um, so it's certainly our challenge here to be able to take you know, the foundation that Robert has laid, take those characters, um, and then open it up and run with it. Uh, you know, Robert has a myth, you know, mythology for these characters um, that he's laid out um, that is a pretty, you know, firm structure that we work off of. Um, and as long as we honor that, mm. he has been, you know, wonderfully gracious in, in giving us carte blanche to go in a lot of different directions. Um, we do, you know, Robert is involved, obviously, you know, in, in the storylines and the breaking of story. Um, and we do look at the elements that he's introducing in individual issues of the comic book and well, as well and say, how can we use that? Sometimes we're way ahead of the comic book. This season, we are introducing characters that Robert is not going to introduce, you know, for another five or six issues. Sometimes we're way behind. Um, there's a character in the comic book, the... Uh, um, police chief of Rome, West Virginia, where the show takes place, um, played by the incredible Reg Cathy, uh, who won an Emmy just recently, um, and uh, also was on Banshee, so it's all in the family. <laughs> um, but uh, Reg uh, plays a sheriff, I'm sorry, Chief Giles, police uh, Chief Giles, who is a, a rather small character in the comic book who we have turned into um, one of the driving forces of the series. Mm -hmm. um, you know, carries a lot of weight. Um, so, uh, you know, and even Patrick, you know, Patrick Fugit, who plays Kyle Barnes, the lead character, 
brought a very interesting humanity um, and sort of his own approach to the character, which allows us to sort of open it up from what's on the page and take it in some different directions. Uh, you know, season one premieres at the uh, you know beginning of the summer. Season two, we're in the room breaking right now. Right, which is crazy. Um, yeah, it's crazy. We're <laughs> breaking season two and the show hasn't even aired yet. Um, but the show has continued to evolve. Um, and season one is fantastic and it's intense. Um, season two, I can tell you, is already exponentially bigger and more intense than first season. Um, so I, I'm really excited for, for the comic book fans to find the show and, and see what we did to sort of translate it. Um, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, that, that so many of the Walking Dead comic book fans flocked to the show and embraced both of them, I'm, I'm expecting the same thing is going to happen here. Now, is that, well, obviously it's not normal, but what is it like working on the second season of a show when the first season hasn't even aired yet? Is it almost like working on one show, one season? Or Because obviously there's a break in there. There is, but here's the thing. We are, so, so we shot, you know, 10 episodes the first season. Right. Um, those, uh, you know, those episodes are all locked. They are all, you know, they are all done. I mean, there's some fine little sweetening going on and maybe a couple extra visual effects tweaks that are being done. Um, but those episodes are done. Um, there was a break in between. Um, and then we came back into the room and it's like starting all over again. Um, the one thing we don't have is audience feedback. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's really, you know, it's nice to know how the audience feels about certain things. The flip side to that is we are all really proud of the first season. Um, it's different if you've got uh, you know, a bunch of episodes, you're not quite sure about them or how they're going right. to be received. There is a you know, level of confidence, not overconfidence, that we, we did the job that we needed to do in this first season and created you know, a very compelling narrative um, with really compelling characters and took the genre, you know, um, because it is certainly a genre show, and did something very different with it. You know, Robert, conceived this show to be something somewhat of the antidote to Walking Dead. It's a very different show. Right. Um, it doesn't have the same sort of elements and, and the, you know, walker of the, you know, of the week in your face. Um, it's a much more thoughtful show. It's a much more intellectual thinking man show. But I assure you there's just as many, you know, scares and set pieces and moments. Um, we just do it, I think, in a very mature sort of way. Knowing how we felt about season one, it gave us sort of a great template to go into season two. Um, there are always lessons learned. You know, you always look sure. back at the first season of a show, which is difficult for any show. Um, you know, it's interesting. As, as shows become very successful and you sort of, you know, get into later seasons and how well-oiled the machine it is, you sometimes forget how clunky it was you know, at the beginning, right. the first season, the first four, five, right. six episodes. And when you go back and watch them, it almost sometimes feels like it's a different show. And that's always going to be the learning curve when you're launching a new show. As, as writers, creators, we're obviously still finding the voices. We have actors who are still finding the voices. So until that sort of work product comes together and those learning curves sort of all sort of mesh, you don't really find your way. The beautiful thing about having a second season now on Outcast is that We've taken all of that knowledge. We've seen what's worked. We've seen what doesn't. We see where our actors' strengths are and where they're most convincing on screen. Um, and we're writing now to that. Um, and obviously, you know, with partners with Cinemax and Fox International as our studio, um, you know, very collaborative with them. Also seeing, you know, where they feel 
we can do better or explore different things and open it up. Um, so I feel really good. And we're, we're now six weeks into the process and we are now breaking episode six of 10. Oh, wow. Um, you know, five episodes have already been approved. Mm -hmm. Five episodes have already, you know, gone to script. People are writing them. So we're, we're, we're a little bit ahead of the curve. I, I know I just jinxed myself. Yeah. Um, and we will <laughs> slow down as we always do. Um, but it's nice also that we're, we're a little bit ahead right now. We don't start prep until uh, uh, end of June, early July and start shooting at the end of July. Mm -hmm. So we still have a little bit of time. Um, but it's nice to be ahead because what we can do with such a serialized show like this is look at the scripts that are written and say, okay, now we need to go back and start smoothing this out and make sure that this thread is woven most effectively through all the episodes and look back and go, you know what? That scene shouldn't be in episode two. It should be in episode four and move things around. Right. Um, and that's a gift. You don't often get that opportunity. So, Now, having the, starting the second season in terms of working on it, um, did the writing staff change at all? Obviously, the, from the top portion of it, obviously, the showrunners stayed the same, but did the writing staff change at all? Because I know when you change showrunners on a show like The Walking Dead has done multiple times, yeah. the, there's a shift in tone and right. a shift in direction. Well, you know, well, well Chris Black, uh, you know, um, executive producer and showrunner of, you know, of the show, who was season, you know, one who handcrafted everything, um, asked me to come on uh, towards the middle of last season. Mm -hmm. So I came in towards the middle. At that point, the initial, the original staff who had broken most of the episodes, they had already finished. They were they were under term contracts. They had written their episodes. They had moved on. Um, so towards the end of the last season, uh, it was Chris and I, um, you know, and um, you know, and Jeff Laming, uh, who's a co-EP on the show, um, and it was really just the three of us sort of figuring out what the end of the season was. Going into the second season. Um, both because certain writers had already moved on to other jobs and because, you know, Chris was looking to also bring some different voices into the room. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were new people brought onto the staff. Um, and, and so far it's been, it's been great because we've brought in people that um, have varied experience. Um, you know, Rebecca Sonnenschein, who comes from, um, you know, Vampire Diaries, comes from a genre world, comes from a place where she really understands... Um, trope in a positive way, sure. you know, of the genre that we're really embracing, um, you know, and then Sarah Bird, um, you know, who also varied various credits, who comes in with a real strong character sense. So I feel like it's a really strong eclectic room of writers who sort of have different, you know, different perspectives on what is best. And that, again, for me, when you're working a genre, to have people that love to do the scares, and then people who love to ground it in, you know, in real character, not that they can't do both, but then meshing those things together, which is I, why I feel really strongly about, you know, the episodes that we're breaking thus far and, and what season two is going to represent. Right. Um, and that actually brings up another interesting point, because we love to ask showrunners uh, in terms of the staffing process, because staffing season's coming up. We love to talk to you about the staffing process, but specifically what I wanted to ask you is what you were just bringing up, different people like diff, who are specialists in different things. How would a writer sort of in their first staffing meeting perhaps highlight that to you? Like the, this is the aspect that I'm really, really good at that you might need yeah. on your staff. I, I, I will tell you, staffing is the, is the most mysterious, <laughs> uncharted, again, for many, many, many years where I was on the other side of it. Sure. And I was the guy you know, taking 
meeting after meeting after meeting, going into rooms, trying to staff, um, and and sometimes getting a job, but more often than not, you know, not getting the job, um, and going home and going, what the hell do I have to do to get a freaking job? Why aren't they hiring me? Why, you know, what is the magic? You know, what is what is it that I need to say? Um, and then jump ahead to the first time I had the opportunity to, you know, help put together a staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suddenly realized that, holy shit, this is even harder from the other side of it. Um, obviously with staffing, and if, if people don't know out there, you know, it really starts almost always with reaching out to the people that you've worked with before and reaching out to friends who are known commodities. Um, that pissed me off for a long time as someone who was trying to staff. Because I said, hey, I can be just as effective as any of those people. People are only hiring their friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I have now realized is it's really not about hiring your friends. It's about hiring people that you know what you're going to get. That when you go into the trenches, that when you, you know, as, a, as an executive producer, have 97 different plates that you're spinning as all, at all times, you know, beyond breaking story and writing scripts and, you know, and crewing up a show and hiring line producers and, and dealing with actors and all of the other things that come into it, what you want to know is that you can have people in the room that are going to move the room forward, that are going to be, um, you know, contributing, you know, people that are going to raise problems in a room and say, this doesn't work. And this is why, but this is a solution. Mm. This is how we can fix it. Right. You know, there are a lot of pet peeves of mine of, of, of things in a room, but that's the biggest one, is that it, you don't have to like a single idea that I pitch you, and you can tell me that every single one of them doesn't work, as long as you give me alternatives, as long as you're generating more ideas. Um, and most importantly, you want people that when you send them to script and they come back with a draft, it's going to be close. That is the job of any staff writer, just about at any level, is to get it as close to the mark as possible. So whoever's doing the past on a, on a, on a script, be it the number two, be it the showrunner, whoever it is who's doing that additional pass, they can do a two, three, four hour polish mm-hmm. versus a page one rewrite. Right. And that is the biggest thing. And that is why showrunners tend to hire the people that they know first. Um, what is often the case is that you reach out to the people that you know, and most of them are not actually available. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when you really open it, open it up to new people. And that's when you start getting scripts, as we all know, you know, from, from every agent in town. Um, for me, I, I have sort of the 10-page test, where I will read the first 10 pages of a script, and if I cannot put it down and I have to keep on reading, that's a person that I want to sit down with and meet. Unfortunately, there are a lot of scripts that I can't get past that first 10 pages. <laughs> right. And, and, it's, and it's, it's so, it's a, it's a terrible thing to hear as a writer who's spent so much time and put so much effort, blood, sweat, and tears crafting a script. But the reality of it all is that if I'm reading 100 plus scripts, for staffing, which have already been narrowed down by, you know, assistants and readers and other people, mm-hmm. and you get those scripts in front of you, and you can't get past the first 10 pages, either because it's boring, or it's not hooking you, or it's just not your taste, you just don't have the time right. to put all into it. But when you do get into the room, when you bring people into the room, and you say, okay, here you are, I loved your material, now tell me about you, you know, it's it's 
always a little bit of a crapshoot because it is a little bit of a personality test. And you can have a great meeting with somebody for 20 minutes and then spend you know, five hours with them in the room and not get along with them at all. And it's a very different dynamic. So you, know, you don't always know. And you really go off of instinct a lot of times about whether or not this person fits. Then you start to get into the, you know, the math equation of saying, okay, I really like that person, but are they going to get along with the three other people that I really mm-hmm. like? And you know what? I really like that person, but they cost X amount of dollars. And I only have so much money in the writing staff budget. And then I've got that other person who I really want who's going to cost me five times as much. So it's a lot of you know, juggling. My advice to anybody who's trying to staff is, first of all, is to make sure that the scripts that you're going out with are the absolute best that they can be. I think people sometimes rush their scripts out there. And I think sometimes it's because agents, you know, agents need material. It's not a knock against them, but they need the tools to sell. Right. Um, but it's, I think it's our responsibility as writers to make sure that those 62 pages or whatever it is that's going out are most representative of who we are as a writer. Write the scripts that you want to read. Write for you. That is my biggest advice to everybody. When you don't have a job, when you're not being paid to write it yet, make sure that you are basically telling the story that you want to tell. That you read that and you literally fucking giggle because it's the greatest thing you've ever... <laughs> it's because it makes you happy. Because that's the material that you want you know, to represent yourself. Right. That's what you want to do. And you want to go out there with that. Um, that is, that is, you know, that is the number one thing. So that when that passion is on the page, people that are reading that script are going to feel it. And look, not every sample is going to be right. And that's what you were sort of talking about before. Is sometimes I'll read a spectrum and I'll go, you know what? This person is a really, really talented writer. But I don't think this voice is at all right for the show that I'm staffing up mm-hmm. right now. And sometimes that's why somebody gets passed on. Um, you know, look. It's all very subjective. Sometimes a script that everybody loves, I may not love just because that's my particular taste. I'll tell you right now, there are actually writers that I've met with and brought in when I didn't love their script, but I liked their writing and I wanted to meet them. Um, there are t- sometimes I've read scripts that are so out there that I'm like, I can't hire this person, but I want to meet, I want to know. <laughs> no, I want to know what else they're working on because I'm fascinated. I would, I would watch their material, I would watch the show or the movie that they create, but I, I just can't write, work with this person right. because they scare me. Um, <laughs> no, and that has happened too. Nice. Um, and I've also hired people that have scared me and, and their work has been everything you want it to be. The, the, biggest, the biggest letdown comes when you hire somebody based on their, on their really, really solid script. You meet them, they're great. They get into the room and they're contributing, and then you send them the script, and they turn in something that you know, with all due respect, looks like a first-year screenwriting student you know mm. wrote it. And I think what that comes from is sometimes people being a little complacent and lazy when they actually have the job. Right. And here's the reality: is that what will keep you working in this industry is continuing to do the best work you can so that the people that can hire you that you work with will want to keep working with you on every show that they work with. You know, um, there are some people that I've worked with in my career that literally they are the first phone call I always make, you know, if I'm staffing a show. If I'm helping someone staff a show, it's always the first name that I put on that list and say, we have to meet with this person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why for me, it's, you know, it, it's my own personal sort of 
you know, benchmark is that I can't half-ass anything. If I finish a script and I don't think that it's as good as it can be, I won't turn it in. Now, look, sometimes I have the luxury of being able to say I'm going to take a couple extra days. Not everybody has that. But that's, that's my other big piece of advice is just make sure that you're putting it putting your all in every script that you write, especially when you're being paid. Right. Especially when, when the pressure is on you and there are people looking at you to deliver um, because you don't want to let somebody down. And then look, the same thing goes for being in that room. You know, I, I have pitched to USC for five years straight, you know, the need for a writer's room class. Mm. Um, someday I'm going to do my own podcast about working in the writer's room because I think the biggest deficiency in education for up-and-coming screenwriters, um, television writers, is they don't know what it's like to be in a writer's room. And you can be the greatest writer in the world, and you can even be a veteran writer. If you haven't actually worked in a writer's room with other writers, you have no idea what you're getting into. Because it's its own sort of animal, and it's, it's a universe unto itself. Every showrunner runs the room differently. Um, there are good ones, there are bad ones, there are all in between. But just the basic etiquette of what you as a staff writer at any level are expected to do in a room and contribute, that's something that everybody should know who wants to do this job. Because so many times I have seen first-time staffers come into a room and drown very quickly hmm. because they don't know. And, and look, there is a, there's always going to be a hierarchy in a room. You know, People have bigger titles and different titles than other people. Um, but the best rooms out there, that goes out the window you walk in there, the minute you walk in there. you know, Somebody needs to be running the room and just to keep it moving so that we don't get bogged down. But basically everyone in that room is a writer on equal footing and everybody in that room is working towards the same goal, which is creating the best episodes possible. You know, And, and that really means that there has to be mutual respect in there. And that's the most important thing. And that's the number one thing that there are no bad ideas. You know, most people will pitch. I do it all the time. I go, this is the worst idea I've ever pitched. <laughs> I do that. But there are no bad ideas because even, even the most misguided thought will lead to some discussion that will lead somewhere else that will create, you know, a diamond out of this, this chunk of shitty coal. Right. Um, and that for me is, is why I love television so much um, because I love to sit back in the writer's room and watch the magic to see how the tiny little nugget of an idea sort of goes through the room, goes through the different voices and perspective, and suddenly is an idea that everybody loves. And then it goes up on the board, and suddenly you see as it all comes together. And that's, that's the magic of it when you have a writer's room that works. Um, so I, I, I urge any you know, up-and-coming writer who's trying to staff right now is to talk to as many seasoned veterans as possible and get their perspective on what it means to be in a writer's room and what they can learn from that. Um, anybody that you know, will answer those questions, reach out. You know, because that is, that is an extremely important skill set that will also really keep you working. Because look, there are a lot of times where if you impress a showrunner in the writer's room, even if you're not the strongest writer on the staff and you're not turning in the best drafts, you will keep coming back because you are worth your weight in gold when it comes to breaking story and being in a writer's room. That is a very valuable skill set unto itself. You know, the dream writer can do both. Sure. But you know what? You know... There is, there is tremendous value, you know, in, in working on both sides of those parts of your craft. So, That's great. Yeah. Um, 
What is your writing process like? <laughs> You've broken a story. You're going to go off and write an episode. Right. Where do you do it? I procrastinate to the very last <laughs> minute. It is, it is such a cliche, but I'm going to say it. I personally hate writing. I love having written. I love sure. rewriting. I love looking down and having, even if it's a shitty scratch draft, 60 pages of words on a page. Nothing strikes more terror and fear in me than staring at a blank page. Um, and I've now, 15 years I've been doing this, and I have that same sinking feeling in the, in, in the pit of my stomach every time I sit down to write. I love um, hearing that, though. No, it's... Because it's, I think it's a challenge for a lot of yes, writers yes. to and, do that. And I'll tell you something right now, that if you don't feel that, you're doing something wrong. I really believe that. Um, I will also tell you that every time I finish a script, I'm also convinced that it's absolute shit. Right. And I take it as far as... And I go, this is the absolute <laughs> best that I can do with it. I think this is really good on the inside, but I have that irrational fear that this is the last script that I'm ever going to write and that people are finally, oh, we knew it, you're a hack all along, and that the secret will be out, that I've been faking it all along. Um, that is my great fear. Um, in terms of the writing process, it's always, always slow starting. It's always slow starting. I, I, I always like to say that I think writing is like any other muscle. The more you exercise it, the more that it's, it's toned and firm, mm -hmm. the easier it is. Um, when I'm doing a show like Banshee and I'm in the midst of production and literally I'm writing a script while rewriting three other scripts, doing production passes, putting out scenes, it, it's, it, it comes pretty fast and furious because it's sort of a well-oiled machine, um, especially the rewriting because that, like I said, I've got the foundation on the page. I have not written a script now. It's going on three or four months. I just the other day sat down uh, to write the, my first outcast script of the season, and it was literally like pulling teeth. <laughs> it was, I mean, me literally staring, staring at the same line of prose for an hour before I wrote any other words. Um, I think day one, I wrote a page and a half. Uh, day, day two, I wrote three pages. Uh, day four was a 12-page day. So... Progression. Yes, so progression. Um, I, I look at people who write at Starbucks... And I, I marvel at them because I need complete silence mm -hmm. and complete isolation because I am like a five-year-old who's distracted instantly. Literally, I joke, I'm like my dog and I see a squirrel and I go yeah. running. Um, you know, I'm going to continue with the, with the animal analogies. I'm very much like a shark. I, I don't stop moving when I'm writing. Um, at home, I have a standing desk, which for those of you who have not yet discovered the most marvelous invention on the face of the <laughs> earth, fucking get a standing desk. Um, changed my life. Um, is yours attached to a treadmill? I've seen them attached I, That to I can't do. There's a treadmill nearby. <laughs> okay. um, no, but uh, when I write, I, I tend to hunch over and I feel all of the, right. the stress and tension in my shoulders. Five, six, seven, eight hours of that and I basically have intense pain in my shoulder for years. Mm. The standing desk, all of that is gone. Really? Because it allows me to just stand in a much better posture. The other thing for me though is I write, you know, 10, 11 lines, and then I walk around for two minutes. And I, so I'm constantly moving, and that's just sort of the process. I come back and then I read what I wrote. Um, you know, I, I, wish, I wish I could say that I'm one of those guys that if I have two weeks to write a script, will parse it out over those two weeks and do it at a nice leisurely pace. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. I right. try and try and try. Um, 
my process, I finally embraced sort of the fact is to wait as long as I possibly can and then hammer out a script. Um, and like I said, the first couple days are always rough, but once I get into this point, if I'm writing 10, 15 pages a day, that's a good pace for me. Sure. Um, sometimes it has to be more. Um, Nothing is as productive as the last minute. Yeah, no, <laughs> and it's weird. You know, I, I was once given advice um, that, that I tried, and sometimes it works for me, sometimes it, I, 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 it doesn't. That day one of writing for me mm -hmm. is I will take the outline that I'm working off of and I will literally open up the script and I will literally put in all of the slugs for every scene and literally copy and paste the, you know, the prose description from the outline and drop it in. And at the end of day one, I suddenly have six pages. Yeah. I've not written a fucking word, right. but I have six pages and I walk away from it and I go, okay, I've got six pages. <laughs> right, you feel good. Um, I, I have done that and it's actually rewarding and then I realize that I'm just fooling myself. So I don't always do it. Um, I tend to write in order um, until I get a little bit later in the script and I come upon scenes that I really just don't want to deal with. Mm. Like the really heavy dialogue, like meaty scenes. So I'll sometimes just skip those. Um, and then come back to them. I like to always save the last scene until the very end because I do sort of enjoy typing the end. Right. Um, I do, and then I, right. you know, and I go and I drink heavily and celebrate, um, and then go read <laughs> the crap that I wrote. Um, I, I'm also I I I realized recently. I'm also my my process for a scene is when I'm starting a scene. I basically just just sort of do a brain dump, and I literally just fragments. I mean, literally, you know. Uh, you know, Bob hits his head on the wall. You know what I mean? Um, says shit. You know, and then and then I'll just do temp dialogue. What the fuck? You know, right. like what do you like? And I literally and and I will suddenly write three pages of just complete nonlinear brain dump of all of the stuff that I want to go. And then I go back, mm. and then I start sort of laying out some of the some of the you know some of the staging of the scene. And then I start working into the dialogue, and it all becomes sort of very rough because there are sentiments that I want to express that I'll just you know completely you know non sequitur in the dialogue that's going on I'll just you know write the character's name and, and say you know you know we need to go to Peru I have no idea where that's going to fit in and then so it just really becomes this um I, I just don't I, I just not one of those guys that basically just starts at the beginning and then just literally writes a line of dialogue writes the response to it writes the you know um, Jonathan Tropper, who is an incredibly talented novelist, but also screenwriter, has that process. He can literally just write a scene from beginning to end mm. and, you know, cut to, and you look back at the scene and it's, it's all there. That's not my process. I will, I will noodle that one scene back, backwards and forwards and, and sideways, you know, until, until there's sort of just a flow there and there's a structure. Um, and a lot of times I don't find the button in the scene until... I've rewritten the scene three times, and right. it just sort of dawns on me. Okay, there it is. There's the button. Now get the hell out of the scene. So, when let's when let's go to Peru becomes uh, next time we say let's go to Bolivia, let's go to Bolivia. Right. right? No, I know, and that's sort of yeah. and that's sort of the you know the fun for me. And then a lot of times that those first instincts go away, and then right. I erase all of that stuff because it's always fun, you know. And then suddenly I'll see a scene emerge from all of just the random words on the page, and right. then I erase all those random words, and I'm like, okay, I got a scene. Move on to the next one. Oh, shit, I don't like this thing. I'm going to skip this one. <laughs> well, it's great to hear, though, because I know William Goldman uh, was the same way. You know, he mentioned that in, in good company. Adventures in, in the Screen Trade. Yes. That it was, he would rather pick lint off carpet than sit down and actually write. And he's, he's obviously brilliant. It's painful. Yeah. It's painful. And any, any 
excuse that I can find. You know, uh, we sort of have a dynamic here where, um, you know, I'm splitting my time between writing and also being in the room, mm -hmm. which is very difficult for me just because it's hard for me to get into the flow to begin with. Sure. Um, and I'd much rather sit in a room with a bunch of nice people and, and eat snacks and, and talk about story. I right. could blue sky story all day long. Right. It's my, um, you know, I'm one of those guys and everyone has their own sort of style in the room. I'm one of those guys that will pitch a hundred ideas a minute. I'm like, what if we do this? What if we do this? They could do this, they could do this. And it's like, no, 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 no. But one of those ideas is going Gold. to is going to fly. Right. Um, I've worked with very brilliant, effective writers in the room who will sit there in silence for 30 minutes with their head in their hands and say nothing. And then they will suddenly look up and go, well, clearly we need them to do A, B, C, and D. And everyone will look at them and go, holy shit, they're absolutely right. right. And that one statement, which they've been pondering and thinking about, basically breaks you know, the entire episode and suddenly we're there. And mm -hmm. all of the problems that we're having. Have, so everybody has their own style. Um, but that's why I love writer's rooms. I love them. Um, and like I said, someday I'll, I'll write my book about uh, effective writer's room. Uh, but uh, I don't know if anyone will read it. Because I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. We'll read it. I don't know how I feel about you know, reading books about screenwriting and about the process. I'm, I'm on the fence. I'm, I'm mixed. You know, there's some good stuff in there and there's some other stuff. That's Absolutely. So Absolutely. But it's all what you get from it. Of course. 100%. You know, like your style of writing, I think, fits similar to probably a lot of writers out there who may think that, oh, I'm not sitting down writing a linear script and exactly the, so I'll, I don't know if I can make it. I don't, it, it, writing is so hard for me. Can I make it? But hearing a story like yours, yeah. I think inspires a lot of writers out there who may have a similar style yeah. and struggle. And like I said, it really depends on why you're writing a script. Sure. You know what I mean? When, when you're writing a spec script, you're writing it because it's a story you must tell. And that's, again, that is my advice also for up-and-coming screenwriters, is don't write a script that you think is going to be the thing that gets you staff and that is going to be able to sell and, and that someone's going to come in and there'll be a bidding war and you're going to make it. Right. Don't do it. That's the wrong reason to do it. Write the script that you have to write, that is burning inside of you, that you are so passionate about this story because that is what's going to get you noticed. That's what's going to get you representation and that's what's going to get you in the room, you know? That's, that's, it, it, it always amazes me, the people who, you know, do it for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. When you're on a show and you're writing somebody else's vision and you're basically a staff writer, that's a different animal. You know what I mean? You're not writing the show that you're burning. But you still, at the same time, have to find something in that script that right. connects to you. You have to, that is, that is their job. I, I always say, you know, we come out of a room and we've got either it's a beat sheet or a, a step outline, whatever it is. Those are the bare bones. It is the responsibility of the individual writer and the expectation of the exec, exec producers that that person is going to infuse their own sort of passion and perspective into those scenes. They're given carte blanche to sort of do that. As long as you're on point with the voice of the characters and on sort of you know, the narrative drive and make sure we're getting out of that scene what we need to move the story forward, you can take it in whatever direction you want to take it. And that's why I always say, even if you're writing, you know, on a, a crime procedural that literally is soul-sucking and has absolutely no emotional resonance for you, find something in there that you are excited about. Find your sort of emotional connection to the story. And that's what will make, this, that's what will make it sing. And that's what will give it life. Right. Um, and that's, look, that's our job as writers. Um, and if you don't want to do that, then spend the rest of your life sitting in your room writing scripts for yourself. 
And I always say that to people because there is a compromise. If you're going to go into television, you are going to have to compromise from beginning to end. You know, when you're pitching an idea, you love the idea, but your boss doesn't love the idea. You're going to compromise. When you write a script and you love the dialogue, but your boss sees it differently, you're going to compromise there. When you are actually, you know, in production on a show and you've written a scene that everybody loves, but you can't afford to make it or you lose a location, you're compromising there. You turn a script in that you love and, you know, the studio doesn't like it. They've got no, so across the board. But what I always say is that even with all of that red tape and even with all of the compromises that you make, it's still the best job on the face of the planet, um, other than maybe owning a professional sports team. Um, <laughs> what sports a little, team? A little you, insight. What sports team would you? Own? I'm a giant hockey fan, so I would buy the Kings tomorrow. But I'm also a giant basketball fan, so maybe I should buy the Lakers and try and help them out because they need some help. Um, but. Um, didn't Jerry Buss own both at one point? Uh, I don't know if he ever owned the Kings. Maybe okay. he did. See, I don't know that. So you stumped me there. Yeah, I don't I'm know. Not, I'm not sure. You just um, thought he did. But, um, you know, the, the point being is that, you know, our job, you know, is, is a great one. And, and the fact that we get to tell stories and, and create something in our mind and then share it with people and then suddenly be watching 200 people bringing that to life. And then soon thereafter, there's millions of people, hopefully, watching it right. and experiencing it. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're connecting to those people in some way. That is, that's a dream job. That's heaven. That, that is a gift. It's what I always wanted to do. So that's the you know, full circle, 20 some odd years after you know, getting out of film school with that notion that I wanted to do something in this business. Right. I, I feel like I, I kind of finally have a sense of it. And that's the other thing, too. And, and I, I sort of tell this to new writers and young writers that want me to give them sort of notes on their scripts and, and give them some insight. Um, I, I say that, you know, 15 years of writing professionally and just now I'm kind of sort of maybe starting to know my voice and know who I am as a writer. Kind of. Wow. Still not there. But that's the process. And I, and I, you know, and not to cast my own beliefs onto everybody else, but I really believe that like anything else, we are all constantly a work in progress and it's constantly a journey. Um, and I think the more you write, the more comfortable you become with your craft. I think the better you become, the more efficient you become. Um, but I also believe it should always be a struggle. Always be a struggle. If you're writing something and it's easy, then you're doing something wrong, honestly. You know, whether it's the simplest scene on the, on the planet, you know, or whether it's, you know, the, the most in-depth, you know, pivotal scene of an entire series or film, it should be torturous. Right. I really believe that. You know, you have to, we are artists, first and foremost, amongst everything else. And I do believe you need to suffer for your art, at least for it to be good. Right. Well, I don't know the, remember the exact quote, but I remember a quote, I'm going to sort of paraphrase here, that... What is a writer? A writer is someone who, for whom writing is you know, the most difficult. Because even in emails and texts, you're like agonizing over a period. Did the comma go here? Yep. But people who just kind of throw it out there, they, who don't look at their own work critically, are the ones who don't improve, don't get better, don't Absolutely. put out good work. I mean, that is, that, is, that is the best representation of an extension of ourselves. I mean, we're hanging it out there. Right. You know? And, and, and you, you have one chance to affect people and move them. You know, so you've got, you've got to put your heart and soul on that page. Right. You know, and, and like I said, it doesn't really matter what you're writing as long as you feel passionately about it. I, I believe that that, 
that that is the thing that is most uh, translatable. I think passion and energy. Um, you know, I always say that as a professional writer, certainly as a TV writer, 10% of our job is to write and 90% of our job is to sell. We are all salesmen. Whether you're selling a pitch in a writer's room or whether you're actually going into studio and network and selling, you know, trying to sell an idea, trying to sell a series, trying to sell yourself in a staffing meeting. I believe that there have been times in my career where I have gotten jobs just because I am so high energy and confident in, in what I'm selling, sometimes myself, sometimes the idea, that maybe the people who are on the other end weren't so sure, but that my, my enthusiasm was contagious. Sure, and, I, and, and for me, it's not bullshit. I'm not going in there and faking it. I'm going in there because I really believe what I'm saying. And if you don't believe it, you shouldn't be in there selling in the room. You know, if, when you're pitching something, if you don't believe that, that this is going to translate into the best television show out there and that you know in your mind how are you going to make this work, then you're never going to sell it because you have to believe it. And I think it's true for just about, you know, anything. And if you don't believe that the scene that you're writing is conveying that same passion and energy and that message you want to convey, then start over. Right. Start over. You're wrong. I mean, I can't tell you how many times as I was talking about my process of writing a scene where I'll go on a run and I'll have, you know, a whole scene of dialogue and I'll look at it and go, why can I not find, you know, the out on this scene? Why can't I find it? And I'll realize, because everything is broken in this scene. The starting point is completely wrong. Right. I've gone on a run. That, yeah, it's a run, but it doesn't take me where I need it to take me. Right. And I literally will go back and throw it out and start all over again. And sometimes that's hard too, you know? I see it with my students. I see it with a lot of young writers. Like the, the impulse is to finish it as quickly as you want. And I get that one because I want to be done as quickly as I possible. Sure. But you can't do that. Right. You can't do that. Sometimes you need to, you know, you need to throw it out and start over. You know, you need to go back to, um, you know, the inciting sort of moment, whatever that sort of, you know, nugget of the idea is and make sure that that is sound. Because if that foundation isn't sound, obviously, you know, another bad analogy, the building will come toppling down. But it's true for scripts, too. So. Right. And it's especially painful when there's some great lines in there or an interaction and you know it's not going to work in the scene anymore the way it's supposed to work. you got to yank it out. Save it's, those it's lines tough. for another script. Yeah, yeah. I can't tell you how many times yeah. I've had a line that I've fallen in love with and I'm like, it doesn't work here. And I'll literally write it on a card and stick it on, stick it on the wall. And three years later, I'll be like, that's it. <laughs> I finally found a place for that line. Nice. Um, yeah, you know, look, and, and, and I, also, I, I also challenge all the writers out there to also defy some of those, you know, pigeonholes that they find themselves in. Right. Um, you know, last season, I was given the opportunity, um, it was a little bit of a fight, I had to fight for the opportunity, but I did an adaptation of a, uh, of a, a New York Times bestselling, uh, you know, true story book called Fearless, based on a Navy SEAL named Adam Brown. Mm -hmm. um, and I was sent the book. And uh, Relativity was looking for someone to do a feature adaptation. And I read this book and uh, could not put it down. Talk about my 10-page test. This is a five, 600-page book that I literally read in three hours and cried from beginning to end. Wow. It, it moved me in a way that I had never, you know, the personal journey, the story, the, the triumphs and tragedy of this, of this real-life person um, that I literally called my agent and said, I need to do this. And... You know, he said to me, you're, you know, you're going to be doing Banshee for the next seven months on location. You know, how are you going to do that? And I said, I don't know. I'll find a way. Um, and they got me the meeting and I went in there and I pitched my take on this thing and I got the job. Um, and while I was, you know, uh, you know, running Banshee with Jonathan, I, uh, 
was also, uh, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, would find three hours to basically, you know, work on this, on this script, which is very different than the stuff that I've been doing later. Um, you know, it is a Navy SEAL story. There are some battle and war elements in it, but at its core, it's a character study. It's a love story um, between, you know, a, a man who had sort of lost his way and hit rock bottom who meets a woman who basically is his salvation. And then ultimately he becomes her salvation. Um, and it was a very different, different thing. And I, 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 I like to joke that here I was doing a show like Banshee where there's not a page of script that doesn't have the word fuck on it 475 times. Right. And in Fearless, in the entire script, I think I, I say shit once and there may be maybe one fuck in the entire script. Completely different. Um, unfortunately, the day I turned the script into relativity is the day that they filed for bankruptcy. Mm. Um, the, script, uh, the script has been out there and, and it's gotten a really positive response. Um, it looks like MGM is going to end up making the movie, hopefully now. So there's still some life in it. Um, but it was really nice to hear people say, wow, this is very different than what we see from you. And, and I think it comes back to always the same thing that I was talking about before. There, was, there were characters in there that spoke to me. There were real people that spoke to me. And, and that was an element, a, a section of the human condition of the experience that I wanted to explore that I hadn't gotten to explore before. And that you know, same passion. I put that into the feature as, as anything else, but um, we'll see what happens with that. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Um, I know you've got a lot going on, so <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but we do have a section we like to call reading, watching, playing, and listening to. What are you reading, watching, playing, uh -oh. and listening to? Uh-oh. Um, to be honest, I'm reading a lot of graphic novels and comic books right now. That's what I'm reading because that is, uh, I do have uh, a number of things in development, a number of projects that I'm, that I'm working on outside of Outcast as well. Um, so that is, with my very limited time, what I have time to sure. read. Um, I read a fascinating article in The New Yorker the other day um, about, uh, about a guy who uh, bought a motel uh, simply because he wanted to watch people have sex. Um, true story. Okay. Um, for all of you people out there, don't try to get the rights because I'm already <laughs> working on it. Um, that was fascinating. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of that, a lot of graphic novels and uh -huh. uh, comic books, unfortunately. And, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of uh, novels sitting on my shelf that, that I will get to eventually. Right. When I, when I retire, most likely. Right, but. right. When you have a hiatus, that's not another show. Yes, right. yes. Um, watching, are you watching anything? Have um, you seen any good films with all your free time? I have not seen too much lately. Um, and unfortunately, I don't get to watch too much TV either just because of my hours. Um, I did catch up on the O.J. Simpson oh. uh, of it all. Mm -hmm. um, I think there were some really great things in there. Um, I watch a lot of documentaries, which fascinate me. Um, and, uh, and, and every now and then, if I'm lucky, I get to catch a Kings game. So nice. that's, that's what I'm watching right now. Nice. Um, playing, do you play any games, instruments? Uh, I, I don't play instruments. Um, I, uh, I, I recently, uh, treated myself to a new motorcycle. Um, oh, cool. yes. After many years of riding, I finally decided I wanted to do Ducati. So that is, that is, nice. that is my playtime. Right. Um, Be safe. and I, I played basketball with my daughter, uh, this weekend. Um, Excellent. and, um, on a very rare occasion on Banshee, when I had a, uh, a few minutes where I just needed to vent, I would play Call of Duty because 
there's something about picking up a machine gun. Sure. <laughs> and especially when you're doing a show like that, where every five minutes the prop guys were bringing real machine guns into right. my office so that I could actually decide what, which, which 50 caliber we were going to use right. for the particular scene we were shooting. Um, so yeah, so, so there's that. And uh, maybe a little Cards Against Humanity every now and then when nice. there's a, uh, an alcohol-fueled get-together. <laughs> And listening, do you what kind of music do you listen to, or do you are you a book on tape kind of guy? Uh, you know what? Everyone tells me I need to do that. Um, I have been trying to find time to listen to serial. Um, I I have not had an opportunity. Um, I have a very long commute. It's about an hour drive into the office every day. But uh, instead of of listening um, listening to anything, I try to maximize that time and be productive. So I'm usually on the uh, on the phone with uh, with with Ashley, who is uh, is helping me develop some of these other projects right now. So I basically um, am spitballing and and spewing ideas, and she's telling me how bad they are and telling me how to fix them. <laughs> um, sure and then and then three hours later, she sends me a document with everything organized, and it's way better than when it came out of my mouth. Nice. Um, so Good job, so Ashley. so that is uh, the truth. Is I'm juggling a lot of things, and there are only so many hours in the sure. day. So I try to be as productive as possible. But I will say for all of the insane workaholics out there like me, mm -hmm. um, in my old age, I'm starting to realize that there is a certain point where you start seeing diminishing returns and you can be too, um, too, uh, too committed to working. Um, you need to find those times to have, you know, the release. And that's again, where the motorcycle and the child comes in, right, you know, absolutely. a nice, even if it's for a short amount of time, just those distractions, um, when you come back to the work, you sort of feel refreshed. And also, you've had a little bit of perspective. Um, so, so find your downtime as well. That's my advice. That's great advice. Yeah. Um, lastly, you've already given us such great information. What is your final advice for aspiring writers out there? Or is there anything else that you wanted to share? Don't give up. Whatever you do, keep fighting. If The caveat to that being is if this is the only thing that you see yourself doing. Um, whenever I start a new semester at, at USC, that's the first thing I always say. I, I, I very much brass tacks say, look, the odds are against you. Um, there are very few paying jobs in this industry and a whole lot of people who want those jobs. Um, that being said, if there is nothing else that you can see yourself doing that is gonna bring you fulfillment, if you know that you're gonna to get to a point in your life where you look back and did something else and feel nothing but regret, then you owe it to yourself to fight, you know, tooth and nail for what you want. Um, with the reality in the back of your mind that you may ne never get it, but that's what a true writer is, is you write because you have to, not just because you want to. Um, it's a cliche again, but it's true. Um, that passion has to be there because you are going to go through a lot of heartache and a lot of disappointment. Um, I, I very quickly in success forget about the unsuccessful times, the periods in my career where I sat on my ass for a year or a year and a half, um, literally bemoaning how terrible the industry was and how I wasn't getting a fair shake, um, questioning my own efficacy and talent as a writer, um, saying that I, I need to find something else. This is never going to happen. Um, and every time you know, I would then get a job, I would suddenly forget about all of that. And then I'd be out of work again and all of that pain and suffering would be come back. Uh, come back. Um, that's the process. That is, that is the life of any artist. Um, I, have, I have 
reached a period recently where I've, I've had a long string of, of, of fortune and luck and I'm, and I'm working and doing what I love, knowing full well that the bottom could drop out any minute <laughs> um, and I could very well go back to a place where I wasn't working. Um, it's a horrifying notion. It's a realistic one. Um, which is why I'm trying to ride the wave and, and remain as productive, you know, as I can while, while the opportunities are there. But I also know that if that time comes, then I'm going to go to my fallback, which is finding a way to be productive and, and continuing to write because it's what, it's what I believe, you know, I, I'm here to do now. Um, I love producing. I love translating what's on the page to the screen. Um, over the last five years, I've been given the opportunity to also start directing, which is something that I am now dedicated to working on that craft because I have a lot to learn. And, and, and much like the writing, you know, I'm still finding my voice there. Um, but I'm going to keep on doing it. And that's, that is really my biggest advice is that just do not give up. If you have to create, find a way to create, whether that's just putting words on the page, whether that's getting together with friends, you know, I, I, when I first started doing this, you know, you couldn't pick up your cell phone and shoot a movie. Right. Now you can. And you can edit it on your laptop while driving. Please don't do that. <laughs> um, you know, I, and that's an amazing thing. You know, all of the stories about Steven Spielberg, right, in his garage, you know, creating his first film. The opportunity has, it's been, it's so much easier to do that. The tools are there. It hasn't become easier to be a good storyteller. Right. That is still just as hard as it ever was. Tell the best stories possible. Make sure there's a beginning, middle, and an end. Make sure that your characters ring true and that they're grounded. And once you do that, then the opportunities are there to make some. You know, shoot it on your phone and put it on YouTube. And look what happens. Look what happens. There's such a precedent for people who are given these giant opportunities. You gotta believe. You gotta believe in yourself because nobody else will. Because I will tell you, most of the people in the industry are looking out for themselves. But the truth is, there are also a lot of great people who are willing to help, who want to read your material, who want to give you notes. Um, look, I, I, I paid my dues in some of the worst ways imaginable. I will spare you some of the, the tragic <laughs> details of that. Of course, um, there are two schools of thought, um, and I'm sad to say that there are people in this industry who, when they get some success, look back at their hardships and say, I'm going to pass that along mm -hmm. and I'm going to make the people coming up suffer just as I have to earn it. I think that's bullshit um, because there's just as many people who face those hardships, who get to a place of success and say, you know what? It didn't have to be that hard because there were people along the way that afforded themselves you know, their kindness and their, and their compassion for me and their help and gave me that foot up. So many people helped me and those are the people that I now try to emulate. Um, and as much as I can, I can't read every single script that someone wants me to read. I can't give extensive notes to every single person who wants them. Um, but I, I believe that I'm very fortunate to be where I am right now and I, I wanna pass that along and I wanna, you know, give those opportunities to the next voice. The person who's going to allow me, hopefully, in someday soon, you know, to be able to uh, set up my, uh, you know, my shingle and basically just stick my name on things and let people way more talented than I am, you know, <laughs> make me look good and make me some money. So that's my, uh, that is my advice. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. Great way to end it. Um, you can follow Adam on Twitter. It's at Adam Targum, T-A-R-G-U-M. And for more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. Thank you so much, Adam. It's My been pleasure. a true pleasure. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>